question or statement is usually followed by uh, a picture of something familiar, uh, but about which you discovered some enlightening, previously unknown uh, uh, revelation. I thought I would give you a few examples. Uh, so the first one is, uh, I was today years old when I discovered that the hole in the box, back of the Chick-fil-A nugget box is for your straw, which allows your cup to serve as a tabletop. Did you know that? I don't usually get chicken nuggets, but interesting. Another one uh, is, I was today years old when I discovered that the slot in the panhandle is meant to hold the spoon. Okay, that was a revelation for me. Uh, another uh, is, uh, I was today years old when I discovered that stress is just dessert spelled backwards. So there's an opportunity to, you know, kind of pivot on your stress. Uh, another is, uh, I was today years old when I discovered that the screwdriver handle is designed to put a wrench on it for extra leverage to tighten or loosen screws. Uh, ingenious. Another uh, is, I was today years old when I discovered that the lines on a red solo cup are actually measurements. That'll change your life, like you don't have to buy any more measuring stuff, just get you a cheap, cheap red solo cup. Uh, another is, uh, I was today years old when I discovered that the tabs on a juice box are for kids to hold onto so that they don't squeeze the box and squeeze the juice out the top. God, I wish I'd have known that when my kids were growing up. Another, uh, I was today years old, and this is true, when I discovered that the iPhone clock app is actually a working clock. So if you have an iPhone later, look at the app and watch it, and you'll notice it's the exact time, and the second hand is moving. Ingenious. Uh, and then one more. I was today years old when I discovered that the recessed circle on a milk jug pops, up when, pops out when the milk goes bad. Uh, seriously, now, how many of you knew that? That would have saved me so many wasted bowls of cereal and that horrible taste in my mouth if I had just looked at the jug. Well, familiar or not, uh, there are a lot of things that we come to think about in life that we might later discover uh, we didn't know so much about. And those are just examples of no harm, uh, no foul uh, facts about things that we're familiar with. Sometimes, though, uh, we come to think about things in a traditional way, uh, and it doesn't square with reality. And the consequences of that uh, can be significant. For instance, though since ancient Greek times, there has been uh, evidence that Earth is round. In 1849, Victorian inventor Samuel Burley Robotham resumed the pre-Greece view that the earth was flat. He argued in his writing and in his speeches that the earth is not a globe, but a flat plain centered at the North Pole and bordered by walls of ice. The movement continued until the founding of the International Flat Earth Society. I hope nobody's here today as a card-carrying member. Uh, and that was founded in 1956, and surprisingly, uh, that idea has once again gained traction in the year 2022. Uh, an even better example comes in the year 1633, when Galileo, the first man to ever view the heavens through a telescope, used his findings to promote the Copernican view. Uh, and the Copernican view said that the universe revolves around the sun and not the earth. We've come to know that as the truth. Uh, and uh, the Catholic Church, however, disagreed with insisting that the earth was the center of the universe. In 1633, the Roman Inquisition found him guilty of heresy and sent him to prison where he died under house arrest in 1642, nine years after uh, suggesting the Copernican view. Incidentally, not the first time that the religious crowd got something wrong. 
I began here this morning because in today's passage, we're going to see something similar, though uh, far more significant and far more serious. Uh, Mark is going to reveal to us a clash of dramatic proportions between how things were thought to work with regard to a relationship with God and how to get to Him and how humans uh, uh, can go about finding Him and the hard truth that Jesus is going to share about the exact nature of humanity's dilemma and the danger for us uh, if we follow a man-centered path as opposed to squaring with God's Word uh, and then turning to Him out of our deep need. I've titled the message today, Truth That Trumps Tradition. And though on the surface level, we're going to find that this issue doesn't really uh, have a lot uh, to offer where we live today, but beneath the surface level, uh, there's something significant, profoundly relevant uh, to the enlightened intellectualism of our day, with its reigning virtues of plurality and tolerance, a denial of absolute truth, and a general belief in the goodness of man. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, if you'll turn your Bible there this morning, we have reached in the previous weeks the peak of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has uh, not only amassed large crowds that are now going to begin to wane, but he has demonstrated time after time uh, his great exousia, his power. And suddenly, in chapter 7, Mark's stories about healings and miracles stop. And he interjects for us the longest conflict controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. It's the longest we will see in his narrative. And in this passage, Mark signals intentionally an ominous change. Uh, There's a pivot that takes place uh, in this story uh, that uh, shifts us into a new direction for Jesus. This is not merely an argument over a difference of opinion. It is, on the one hand, another attempt of the religious leaders uh, to trap Jesus, uh, to find him doing something wrong, and to uh, uh, substantiate grounds for getting rid of him. They'll find that for their uses. But at the same time, on the other hand, it becomes an opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate the diametrical opposition, the irreconcilable difference between the gospel of his kingdom and that of every other notion about God and how to have a relationship with him. Jesus uses this conflict to remove any possibility for compromise. This isn't a meeting at the table to see if we can reconcile our differences and come together to work for the good of the people. Now, Jesus is going to drive a a nail in in the ground. He's going to draw a line in the sand, and he's going to demonstrate that there is irreconcilable differences between what he is bringing with his kingdom, his offer, and that which man can achieve on his own. So there's no, to be no confusion, this is Mark's concern for us, as I said to you before, he's pushing us to a point of decision where we cannot remain neutral. Uh, It cannot be, uh, you cannot put a a bumper sticker on your car that has lots of religious uh, emblems on it, uh, allowing everyone to find their own way if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Mark won't allow that. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, he means it, and he means to make that point today. There's to be no misunderstanding uh, between the self-righteous world of man and the inbreaking kingdom of God. So this, this passage is a, a narrative hinge. Jesus has been ministering among the Jews principally in Galilee. But beginning with this story, he's going to shift his attention away from the area of Galilee to minister to Gentiles predominantly, demonstrating that his gospel is going to include even those who are not Jews, and he's going to set his face toward Jerusalem, where he will meet his end. 
Now, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, we were told a few weeks ago, uh, took place just around Passover. So we are precisely in chapter 7, with many more chapters to go, we are precisely one year out from the passion of Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So this is the second time in Mark's gospel that we see uh, religious leaders, high-powered religious leaders coming from Jerusalem uh, to investigate Jesus. The first time they came, uh, they tried to call Jesus on the carpet for ministering to people on the Sabbath. To break the Sabbath was a, 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 an infraction of the law that was punishable by death. Jesus refutes that by saying that the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath. So it's lawful to do good, as we did just a few weeks ago in our city. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But these religious leaders are coming because word continues to spread. And now word has traveled to Jerusalem of this massive crowd that has gathered. And Jesus has miraculously fed them. And so they're desperate to confront Jesus and to set him back a step or two so that he doesn't infringe upon their leadership. This is an official delegation. They've come from the seat of holiness. They've traveled to Galilee from Jerusalem where if anyone wanted to know God, they would go to Jerusalem where God's house is, where he resides. And so they've come with not only great authority, uh, but a condescending authority to put Jesus in his place. Now, uh, the issue that uh, they've come, uh, that that's going to come to the surface is the issue of, of purity. It has to do with the purity laws. Uh, and uh, as they come, they're not only investigating Jesus or disputing him, they're actually looking for a reason uh, for his demise. He, the, the scripture verse 2 says that uh, they saw that his disciples were eating with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, they're not concerned about hygienic reasons. Uh, for a long time growing up, uh, I thought that there was an actual verse in the Bible because of my mom uh, that said, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. That is not actually in the Bible. It took me two degrees to discover that. Uh, it's good to wash your hands. We've recently lived through a pandemic where we were all encouraged to wash our hands the requisite number of uh, seconds so that they were clean. But the, the concern in this passage is not just about being uh, hygienic. Uh, the concern for the Pharisees is that eating with unwashed hands was tangible proof of the, your indifference to moral holiness. That if your hands were dirty uh, by exterior things and you were willing to touch your food and put it in your mouth and you were demonstrating that you had no, no regard for holiness. Now Mark, because he's writing to uh, a Gentile audience in Rome, gives us an explanatory note in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, Mark says, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, beds. It's important for us to know here that in Scripture, there is only one stipulation for hand washing, and it applied to the priest when they were offering sacrifices to God. So the only time that in the books of the Bible that God stipulated hand washing as a requirement was for the priest when he was offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And nevertheless, uh, we're, we're told in Jesus' day, it had become an entrenched tradition uh, that you had to wash your hands uh, a certain prescribed manner. Uh, sometimes they would even wash their hands between courses. W very meticulous. 
Uh, what's important for us to notice is that he says, according to the tradition of the elders. Now, the tradition of the elders consisted of extra-biblical regulations. So I, that's, that's what I was trying to point out. They're drawing on something that we do not find in the Bible. They're drawing on a tradition that they created. Uh, was contained in, in the Mishnah. These were purity laws in, in, in a writing called the Mishnah. 25% of the Mishnah dealt with purity laws. That is, how can you be pure? And it was all about the exterior. And then that's included in the Talmud. These were rules for achieving purity. It's very important for you to understand. If you want to be pure, wash your hands so that whatever you eat doesn't defile you. This was their, their premise, that because the disciples were eating with unwashed hands, they had no regard for their personal purity. Now, uh, the, the Israelites believed that God handed M Moses the law, which is what we have contained here, principally the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then Moses handed it to reliable men, priests uh, and scribes, and uh, later on Pharisees, and Pharisees distinguished themselves as meticulous about the law, and that the job of those scribes and priests and Pharisees was to build a, a fence around God's law. So God gives Moses uh, the, the Ten Commandments and, and the law of the first five books, and it was the job of the religious leaders to then build a fence. Every conceivable way in which you could offend God's law, they built measures around it so that no one was ever actually going to come close to breaking the law. This was the intent of the Pharisees, was to create rules that people would follow so that they could stay a country mile away from offending God's law. And the problem is that it led to externalism. It led to moralism. It led to legalism. The idea that by creating a bunch of rules, I can somehow prove that I'm right with God and, in fact, be right with Him. I grew up uh, sarcastically uh, in a church that had a list of rules. Uh, maybe you did too. My, our rules were don't dance, don't drink, don't curse, don't chew, and don't associate with people who do. And the idea was if you kept those rules, then you were showing to other people that you were serious about your purity and that you were, in fact, a, a child of God. The problem, of course, we're going to see is that does nothing to change the interior. The Jerusalem Talmud actually recorded these words, whoever is firmly implanted in the land of Israel, who speaks the holy language, okay, so you don't live in Israel, you probably don't speak Hebrew, uh, who eats his food in purity, another one, and recites the Shema morning and evening, is assured of life in the world to come. So if you do these things, you'll be assured of life in the world to come. Now, it's interesting, Mark adds an important note uh, for his readers that Jesus is going to draw on. Uh, at the end of verse 4, he says, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Don't, don't forget that, we'll come back to it. So here's the question. Having observed Jesus' disciples eating with defiled hands, they ask, the Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So in order for us to understand this conflict, not to get lost in saying, well, we don't need to regard this passage because we wash our hands, we get it, uh, it's just not a ritual for us. We have to consider uh, two points. One is uncleanness, and the second is the tradition of the elders. In order to understand how this passage fits with us, we have to separate or distinguish the surface level issue, which is the idea that you, by washing your hands you can make yourself pure, and the underlying one uh, and how they fit together. 
So uh, the, the issue that Jesus is going to have it deals with the tradition of the elders. But the question, uh, the, the broader question at play here is how does a person, how do you, how do I become pure? How do we become right before God? The debate between Jesus and the Pharisees is between two different ways of understanding what it means to be good. We live in a world where we just blanketly ascribe, even though we have tons of evidence to, to suggest otherwise, that, that people are generally good. Well, we need to ask the question from God's vantage point. What does it mean for us to be good? To the Pharisees, God was a distant lawmaker who hemmed people in uh, by laws uh, to make them his people. That God is this distant God uh, who hands down to us a, a set of laws, and if we can distinguish ourselves enough, then we will prove that we are God's people. Jesus, on the other hand, views God as the Father, uh, the Father of those who trusted Him. He wants His children to live in open fellowship with Him. Uh, the, the conflict here is ironic, uh, principally because of the great Shema. How many of you know the great Shema? The great Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are not external things. And then you shall love your neighbor as yourself becomes the second great commandment. And they would repeat this three times a day. Uh, the Mishnah said two times, but in today's practice, three times a day, they will stop down and they will repeat the great Shema, which is all about knowing a God and loving Him from the interior of my life. And yet, their tradition had become so overwhelming if they repeated the great Shema three times and they ceremonially washed their hands, not just every time they sat down to eat, but between courses, they're washing their hands more than they're actually reminding themselves of the love of the God they've come to know, that they're called to love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the question, how does one achieve purity? The Pharisees want to know from Jesus, why do your disciples eat with defiled hands? Jesus doesn't answer them. Verse 6, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice that Jesus' reply to them is not only the answer to the question they were asking, but it's also direct, penetrating, and biblical. If you follow Jesus, he will always take you to the truth. This is why truth trumps tradition. Jesus speaks to them the truth, and he quotes from them, for them Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And what we discover, and this is only one place we could go to uh, that Jesus cites, but what we discover is that God's people have always had a problem just meeting him where he was just resting in his love for them and out of a heart of love seeking to obey the commandments. They had to erect a religious structure that enabled them to contribute to the cause. Are we not like that in some ways? We look for validation of who we are, for our love for God, our commitment to him by having things, a list that we can check off. We do these things. This was problem is that they didn't want to just rest in what God had called them to be, and so they started creating rules. And, and Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, that the problem is, is that you talk a good game, but you're not actually living it. You, you, you seem to know what you believe, you just don't know how to apply it to how you behave. And so you start looking for other ways to validate yourself, and when you do that, you prove that your heart is far from me. 
Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaking again to the Pharisees says these words. He doesn't soft sell it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And yet that's the very thing they're going to do with Jesus. As a result of their hypocrisy, the word hypocrite comes in the Greek from the, the, the realm of the theater. Uh, it has reference to actors wearing, play actors wearing masks. Tried to find one. It's hard to find a mask in Gunnison, Colorado before the weekend. Uh, and, and what they would do is when they portrayed a character that was sad, they would have a mask that had a sad look on its face or happy and vice versa. And so they were just pretending to be a character. And so what Jesus is saying then, though we would be greatly offended to be called hypocrite, although the church lives with that stigma uh, from the outside world, uh, Jesus is saying that they play a public role in being devoted men of God, but their attitudes and their actions demonstrate that they don't really even know who he is. And as a result, their hearts were distant from him. They placed their tradition above Scripture. The observance of man-made external rules had taken precedence, taken place over the inward uh, spiritual grace of God in their life. Holiness was being judged by what could be seen, but God looks on the heart. God measures holiness by observing us from within. And so the, the, the Pharisees had not only replaced God's word by their tradition, they had outright rejected God's law. We're going to see that in the example that Jesus gives him. The charge Jesus levels against them is that by teaching human tradition as divine revelation, they were guilty of setting aside God's word. And they were only left with a religion of performing and pretending. And so often, it's true of us. I grew up in a church where you put on your Sunday best. I'm grateful that we grew out of that. Uh, and that you put a smile on your face and you looked the part while you were in the house of God, regardless of what was happening in your heart, regardless of what was happening in your, your family or your marriage or your personal life. You just performed. You just pretended. And the problem is that only works with us. It doesn't work with God. He sees through that. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, that to be a true worshiper is to worship God in spirit, that's an inward thing, and according to truth. And the Pharisees had painstakingly ignored the interior to focus on the externals, and they had also set aside truth. The Old Testament declares over and over again that the worship that pleases God is worship that flows from a heart that sincerely loves Him and desires to obey His word. Listen, it is not a proposition of the outside in. It doesn't work that way. Uh, this leads to the first thought I have, that the idea of empty fixation on external. This is a long one, but bear with me. Pursuit of purity based upon practice. Pursuit of purity based upon what you can do can only ever lead to an endless performance for something less than who God is. Listen, you can live your whole life, do all the good deeds that you can do, and you will never attain to the righteousness of God. Isaiah tells us that our righteousness before God is like filthy rags. It also leads to pretending before other people to be something that you aren't. Uh, and that inevitably leads to passing judgment. You know why the Pharisees were so proud of the rules they kept? 
Because they could point to the Gentiles in particular and even to some of their own brothers and sisters and say, this is why we're better than you. For too long the church has in many ways offered a message like that. When what they ought to hear is that this is, a, this is a, a fellowship of sinners before it's a fellowship of saints. We're all sinners who've been redeemed by God's grace, forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ on our way to being made righteous like Him. Listen, I stand before you today just a sinner who desperately needs Jesus as much today as I needed Him the day I met Him. This is the message the world needs to see. This is a message that invites us to step out of the darkness into the light. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to perform for God. He's done everything for us so that we can just walk with Him in His grace without judging other people. The problem, Jesus cites in chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And He said to them, you have a fine way, this is sarcasm, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. And again, he takes them directly to Scripture. In fact, he takes them to the horse's mouth, as it were, to the words of Moses. Chapter 7, verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. The fifth commandment is in the ten, okay? The ten are a big deal to God. When, when he was in front of Moses and he wanted his people most to know what it meant for them to have relationship with him uh, and relationship in the covenant community of the redeemed, he gave them ten ideas. This is number five. Honor your father and mother. Anyone who reviles their parents is punishable by death. He continues, Whoever, uh, whatever you would have gained, uh, but I, I'm sorry, let me back up. Verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban. Corban was basically a pledge, a devotion to God. So like, this is, I'm devoting this Corban, I'm Corban, I'm devoting this to God. And by saying that, you were basically being able to put your finances beyond the reach of your parents. Verse 12, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his mother or father, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many, not just this one, many such things do you do. This had become a practice, and it's not altogether, altogether unnoteworthy uh, that someone could say, listen, I, I, I want to dedicate this to the Lord. Great. But when you start doing that, in order to maintain control over it, which was exactly what was happening, so that you were free from the fifth commandment. Then you've replaced a tradition for the truth of God's Word. This speaks to our ability uh, to rationalize our action. They had created a loophole by their words that allowed a person to maintain control. They weren't signing it over immediately. They were just saying, before it's all said and done, I'm going to devote this to the Lord. They could also reverse Corbin and use it for themselves. But it was a way for them to uh, short, uh, sidestep what God had commanded them to do, which was to honor their father and mother, to take care of them. So what's at stake here, while we're dealing with an issue of hand-washing, what's at stake here is the actual, uh, nothing, nothing less than the actual way whereby we are saved. Jesus wasn't just simply supporting an abstract idea of Scripture against tradition. He was challenging the whole works-based mentality that there's something that you and I can do to get to God. And if there's something that we can do, then we can play fast and loose with what He says here. If we can create another way to think about it, then we don't have to obey Him here. We can just reason with ourselves that we've done enough, that we've accomplished what it takes to be pure. 
If the kingdom of grace that Jesus is introducing and the work that he is doing by healing, by feasting with outcasts, by rolling back the kingdom of darkness, inevitably by his death, uh, then the direction of the externalism that the Pharisees were pointing people to has to be utterly rejected. Listen to me. If, if your belief system, as you sit here this morning, if your belief system is a little bit of Jesus and some other things, Jesus and the things that I do that I hold dear, if, if Jesus' righteousness gets mixed with any of your righteousness, then friends, you do not have what God is offering The Pharisees have to be utterly rejected. Jesus here is going toe-to-toe with them, and there's no turning back at this point. He knows he's come to die, and he's only confirming to them that he's prepared to do so. You and I must rest alone in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done, because only his work can change the interior. Only he can change the heart. Now, the idea of fencing around the Torah and the church has often been, it's dangerous to preach grace. Why? Well, because people want to use grace as a license to sin. But as Chuck Swindoll uh, once said, if we don't preach grace, what else do we have? There is nothing else, friends. There's what you can achieve on your own, which will never measure up to God. And there's the grace of God. And he understands that as his children, we will sometimes abuse that. And the same answer for impurity due to hand-washing or to hypocrisy or for abusing grace is the same, repentance. Part of being a Christian is to learn the art of spiritual discernment, and part of that is learning to understand Scripture against which we test our traditions. Uh, It's not a private matter that Jesus is engaged in here, so uh, because it's public, it needs a public response, and Jesus' intention, as I underscored uh, is to throw down a gauntlet that there is an irreconcilable ir- an, an, uh, uh, an inevitable uh, clash a, a veritable gulf between who Jesus is and the message he is proclaiming and the grace that he is offering and the way that you and I can approach it on our own Jesus traced four steps in this passage that the Pharisees took to twist truth and tradition to tradition first they took a spiritual truth uh, and then they represented it by a meaningful symbol. Okay, so purity was in t- the purity laws were intended to help us understand there's a deeper need for purity in our lives. So they created a tradition. Let's wash our hands really well. We don't want to be adversely affected by the world out there. Second, meaningful symbols then are ritualized and they become required spiritual exercise. Because the disciples hadn't washed their hands, they demonstrated that they were Im- ambivalent about moral purity. Third, The right then replaces the actual experience with God and uh, the original truth that it represented. So the outward symbol is no longer a sign of an inward grace. There was no grace in the Pharisees. They were all law all the time. And they they had no grace for other people who maybe didn't understand yet or or hadn't been uh, taught God's word yet. They were just fixated on their tradition. And then fourth, in the end, the ritual is used to justify sin. They were not only condemning of the disciples, they were prepared to kill Jesus, and they would. We do the same thing in our day. In the Christian church, we have a symbol of an outward picture of the inward reality of our relationship with Christ. Our commitment to Jesus, what He does, the Spirit does inwardly, is what makes us children of God. This is just a picture. But we take this symbol 
And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll use that as, uh, as, as to prove that we're card-carrying members. And because I had that, I was baptized when I was young. I'm not living for the Lord now. I don't go to church now. I don't read the Bible now, but I was baptized when I was, we've done the exact same thing. People do it with giving. People will, in order to maintain control over their own finances, they will find excuses for, well, I gave money points, or uh, I, I did Operation Christmas Child, and they'll excuse themselves from God's command to bring your tithe into the storehouse. We've done the exact same thing. Created a tradition that we think trumps truth, but it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. It's exactly the opposite. We've actually obfuscated truth in order to have a tradition. Attendance. Listen, there is nothing that you and I do that is contributing to our standing with God. It all rests upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And only when we have tasted and seen that He is good, when we have experienced His grace and forgiveness, only then do our works flow out of a heart of love. Prior to that, there's something in it for us to gain. But as a Christ follower, when we're not trying to twist the truth, uh, we're invited to uh, do the works that He created for us to do and to do them out of a heart of love. I'm not trying to earn anything from Him. Listen, there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more or to make God love you less. If you're in Christ, there's nothing about your position in Him that is at stake based upon performance or pretending. We're simply invited to make progress in the journey toward Christ-likeness. Now, very quickly, Jesus pivots with a parable. He turns to the aklos again, verse 14, and He called the people to him again and said to them, hear, to, hear me, all of you, and understand. Jesus is underscoring the internal significance of a, what he's about to say. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And Jesus here brilliantly turns uh, the, the expression of his opponents, their, their basic belief uh, about vessel defilement against them. Remember what he said? He, he said, Mark told us that they had many other traditions, including cleaning pots and cups and bowls and even beds. What do all those things have in common? They have an inside. They, they go to great lengths to clean it, but they miss the point. The point was you, you clean a cup on the inside because that's where something's going that you're going to consume. You're going to drink. And Jesus is saying in the same way that they do that, they just miss the point. Purity is about the inner man. Purity is about the inside, not about the external. It's not about what you do outside. Jesus reverses the flow. It's not an outside-in sort of thing. It's an inside-out. Jesus was underscoring that they had missed the point of the law altogether. Paul tells us that the law was given to convince us that we're lawbreakers. How many of you know that? How many of you have a law on the books in the U.S., a favorite go-to law that proves you're a lawbreaker? Do you have one? I do. I have a bit of a lead foot. And I get convicted about it, too. Not always to the point of repentance. Lord, forgive me. The, the point of, of purity laws, the point of, uh, of a law in the U.S., uh, is not only to help us function correctly in society, uh, but to prove to us something about ourselves. There's something in us that's wrong. 
And no matter, amount, no matter how many times we try, you may have ones you're good at, I may have ones I'm good at, but we all have some we're bad at. And that's because we can't change ourselves. By being fixated on externals, the Pharisee had missed the deeper challenge of the gospel, which is every one of us has a broken heart that needs to be changed. This is the second thought, that fruitfulness of focusing inward. The path to purity and reconciliation to God begins with the realization that the problem is with my heart. The problem is with your heart. And you are hopelessly helpless to change that. I can't do anything to change the interior of my life. So Jesus says, uh, as he moves from the crowd to the house, aklos to the oikos, he then tells the disciples the meaning of the parable. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Listen, this isn't going away. We're going to consistently see up to the day Jesus dies, the disciples are slow to get it, just like you and I. And he said to them, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then is expelled. We'll come back to Mark's note in just a moment. So there's a contrast here between stomach, uh, the Greek word is koelia, uh, and heart, the Greek word is cardia. Uh, it's poetic when you see it in the Greek. Uh, and what Jesus is saying is that anything that goes into your mouth is not going to affect your heart. It's going to go to your stomach. Your stomach is going to extract nutrients from it, and then you're going to go to the latrine, that's actually the Greek word we find there, and you're going to expel it. Nothing that you eat or drink can defile you. Mark adds the note that by saying this, Jesus was declaring all foods clean. We'll come back to that in a moment. So the focus here is about uh, the heart, and, and the heart uh, in uh, much of, of the ancient world, but especially in biblical history, is the source or seat of one's mental, emotional, and spiritual being. Who you fundamentally are. You are not what you do. What you do is an extension of who you really are. And this includes attitudes and affections and priorities and ambitions and desires and your will. In popular philosophy, going back probably to Plato, the idea was that the physical world is somehow corrupt and the inner world, the spiritual world, uh, is good. And so what we just need to do is stay away from the physical world, from, from the bad. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. Jesus is saying that the reason why the external world is often impure and bad and evil, mixed with a little good, is because it flows out of the human heart. It comes from an eternal source. And so Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're offended, then I'm telling you what Jeremiah said about you. You're offended. But you should know that God tells us the truth. Jesus is confronting us with the truth because of his inordinate love for us. He knows that we are hopeless to fix the problem apart from him. And the only way we will embrace the solution of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the cross of our King, is when we come to terms with who we are and how desperately we need Him. Paul says, every single one of you has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm also included in that all. We have no hope apart from Him. 
Our hearts, the Latin phrase, idolarum factorum, our hearts are idol factories. We specialize at making lesser things to worship, and we create traditions and structures to accomplish that. God rejects it utterly. It is not pleasing to him. He says in the Old Testament, it's a stench to him. He wishes we'd stop doing it. He wants us to turn to the grace of Jesus Christ and by turning to him in repentance and faith to find our hearts made new that we might worship him out of a heart of love. Jesus goes on, verses 20 and 23, to summarize what this looks like. He said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And he breaks these down into six uh, attitudes and six acts. He starts with six actions, and these are all in the plural, meaning they tend to be repeated. Uh, They correspond to the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. If I had time, I'd unpack the meanings of those that are less obvious. But from Acts, then he, he looks at attitudes. He goes a little deeper into the heart. These are singular. Uh, they, they just represent kind of the condition of our heart that we can randomly apply to pretty much anything. Uh, he says in the abstract that we uh, are deceitful, uh, that our hearts are full of sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus' explanation assumes that all that comes out of every person who lives is evil. He lays the the foundation for a radical understanding of total depravity. That you're not only depraved, but there's nothing you can do to change yourself. Now that good may come of us is not at question here. The passage neither confirms or denies that. We will offer the possibility of that. But what's in view here is not a comparison of goodness to badness in another person. What is compared here is our goodness in comparison to his goodness. And by comparison to his goodness, our goodness is just filthy rags. Mark labors to clarify that the essential purpose of God's word and that of his great love for us, his his refusal uh, to let us go our own way toward our own demise, so he confronts us with the truth. And, And at this point, though Jesus doesn't offer a proposed solution for our disease that he has diagnosed, Mark invites us to read on. The assumption that Mark clearly wants us to arrive at at this point is that Jesus is offering a cure for the problems of the human heart, for the springs of motivation within us that invariably and uncontrollably lead to an expression of wicked thoughts and deeds. Only Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not concerned about what you do. I'll take care of that in time. I want your heart. I need to change your heart. If if I can make your heart new, the the exterior will take care of itself in time. And there's only one person you can turn to for you to discover who you were meant to be. That leads us to the last question. How can a defiled heart be made pure? How can we be made right with God? The psalmist asks this question when he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? You know what his answer is? By guarding it according to your word. See, the Pharisees had come to a place of just neglecting it. All they cared about was was putting on a show that made them look superior to other people. They were neglecting their hearts. And the psalmist says, you guard it according to God's word. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. 
Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God is offering to us something other than religious tradition. Listen, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not offering to us a moralism that is rooted in who we might be if we just work hard. It's not offering a, a list of rules, a, a legalistic set of things, standards to follow that if we could just perform them hard enough, if we could just work hard enough, then we could prove that we're worthy of His love. That's not the gospel. Jesus is offering us without having to invest a single thing in it other than our hearts, our repentance, our faith, forgiveness of our sins, and adoption into His family. Coming to terms with the hard truth about me and then turning to Jesus is the only thing that leads to new life. And it's so great to sing about our King because all of us are just bit players in the story that God is telling it doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're living the Christian life right, then Jesus is winding up being the, the hero of your story. If people respect you for, for who you are and for what you've accomplished and they never know what Jesus did for you, then you're not living it right. The more we come to know the holiness and awe of God, there must be a corresponding depth of how desperately we know we need Him, which is why Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. He had planted churches all over Asia Minor, written so much of the New Testament, and the longer he walked with Christ, the more he understood how deep the need was in his own heart for God. If we can come to the hard truth, then good things happen. Ezekiel says, God says in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. Talk about being obsessed with hand washing. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Not because you're earning something, but because you've come to bask in my great love for you. I'm, I become your father and you become my daughter or my son. Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, He saved us, not because of works done in our righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified in His grace, we might become heirs of the, to the hope of eternal life. Listen, salvation is not earned by externals or morality or legalism. The only way for your heart to be the only way for my life to be right with God is for me to turn without reservation, without hesitation, without calculation or consideration and offer my life to God in exchange for what Jesus Christ did for me. The heart by sin has made the center of the heart the center of defilement that no outward ritual can cleanse. Your sin has made you the source of defilement that there is nothing you can do to cleanse it. In this passage, Jesus has signed his own death warrant. But at the same time, he has set himself up to be the redemption for us that only he can be. True righteousness is available only in Christ Jesus. 
For Paul says, as many as by one man disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Again in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, for our sake, for your sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, not in striving or working or rule keeping, but in him, you might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus is the sweetest name I know. You do not know him by grace and faith in Christ alone. I would implore you to open your life to him today. He will change you utterly from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness that you have shown us. Thank you that you were willing to challenge religious leaders who seem to have it all together. Thank you that you cared about Gentiles like us that were far removed from your covenant people in the Old Testament. That you loved us in spite of our sin. God, our prayer today is that we would not only find ourselves hidden in Christ, but that we would be worshiping and living, and loving, and doing what we do out of the overflow of the abundance of your grace within us, simply because we love you. May we see others around us, even others who, whose lives are messed up, even others who are still deep in their sin and they don't see it, may we recognize that that you will set yourself apart as a God of grace for them just as you did for us. For the one Father who doesn't know you, I pray that you would deliver them today from this idea that they have anything to contribute to becoming pure. I pray that you'd give them the grace to recognize, like the rest of us, they're compromised. There's nothing that they can do to change their own heart but there is a God who loves them. There is a God who has provided for them. A God who is capable of changing the innermost part of our lives and making us new. And his name is Jesus. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Stand with me, would you? We'll finish up chapter 7 next week if you want to read... Um, on into chapter 7, then, uh, well, I say we won't finish it next week, but we'll be in the next section of chapter 7. I want to close with these words, probably familiar to you, but as a charge for you to go out and live this week. Therefore, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? Say it again. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. We are on a journey away from the person we were apart from him. And yeah, maybe there's some vestiges of Adam still living in us, but they are no match for a God who has redeemed us by the grace of his son. By his blood, we have been washed and made pure. And as we walk through the process of sanctification, he will make us look like his son. And then he says, all this is from God. He didn't say, all this is from God. Well, there's a little bit of Jason. Jason did some stuff. 
Paul did some stuff. Now he says, all this is just from God. There's nothing that we can do to contribute. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. As we bask in the goodness of God's grace over us, grateful that we know if today is our last, we know where we'll be tomorrow. When our appointed day arrives, we're not worried. May we remember that not only have we been reconciled to God, that we might have peace that passes understanding, but we've also been made agents of reconciliation to a world around us who desperately needs to know there's a God who loves them and who gave himself to save them. May God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.